Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. Ruth Simmons made history in 2001 when she was named the president of Brown University, making her the first black president of an Ivy League institution. She joins us today to talk about her new memoir, Up Home, and weighs in on affirmative action and legacy admissions in college. Our conversation after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with Ruth Simmons, the former president of Brown University and the author of a new memoir titled Up Home, One Girl's Journey. Welcome, President Simmons. Thank you. Good morning. You begin your memoir by writing, I was born to be someone else. Tell us what you meant by that. Well, uh, what I meant was due to the fact that I was born in the 40s in East Texas under Jim Crow in a fairly desperate, impoverished environment opportunities for me were, shall I say, quite limited. And my the expectations of what I could do in my life uh, were modest, to say the least. I came up as the youngest of 12 children. We lived on a sharecropper's farm until I was seven years old. And then we moved to inner city Houston, where I continued my education in schools that were unequal still during segregation. And so when I was a child, I had very low expectations of what was possible given the racial climate in the country and given the educational opportunities available. And yet somehow miraculously, in spite of that, I turned out to be somebody else. In one part of the book, you vividly described the first time you walked into a classroom at the W.R. Bank School in Grapeland, Texas, What do you recall about that moment, and and why was it so significant to you? Well, imagine, if you can, that era when uh, we're living basically in uh, one of a hundred sharecroppers' shacks on a vast farm. Uh, there, There is no electricity. There are no amenities whatsoever. There are no books in the house. 
I'm the youngest, I'm a nuisance because, I mean, who needs a 12th child? And so when I came along, just the idea that I was there and I was taking up space was an annoyance to my (laughs) sisters and brothers. And then when I walked into this classroom, I became a person uh, for the first time because my teacher welcomed me and said, good morning, baby, come in. She showed me Mm. to a desk that was my own and to uh, books that were my own. Imagine how I must have looked. Pretty shabby, ragged, and yet she acted as if I was the same as everybody else, a perfectly valid human being. And so the welcome that I got, I can't even describe how exciting that was to, to somebody like me who felt really unappreciated, on the outskirts, and then suddenly here's a place where I am a peer. So that's what it meant to me. What was the turning point for you? When did you realize you could be something more, you know, you were born to be someone else? I think I fell in love with learning from the first grade on. Once I started learning and had access to books and started reading about the world outside of the one that I lived in, I came to grasp at first very haltingly and later on really very significantly that there were other worlds outside of the one that I knew. And not all of those worlds were going to be discriminatory. Not all those worlds were going to paint me as an unworthy human being. And I came to understand that the whole social environment that had been created around me was an absolute lie. And so I started a quest to see what the rest of the world was like. And uh, as uh, as I gradually learned about other ways of living and other lives and other people, Uh, I came to think, well, I I think I can do something. But even then, I thought what I would do would be quite modest, actually. Um, Everybody I knew growing up who was a woman was, was a maid. So I thought maybe I'll be able to escape hard physical labor and maybe I can work in an office. So that was my aspiration. Oh, interesting. And it, at one point in the book, you described the moment when you realized that you never needed to doubt yourself ever again. It had to do with learning to speak French, right? Tell us about that. When you're in a segregated environment, when you're isolated from other people, it's very hard to figure out what you have the capacity to do. And so for much of my life, I thought, well, I'm pretty, I'm pretty smart, I can do things. But I didn't think that I could do things on a par with people who were much wealthier, people who had traveled widely, people who had all kinds of advantages. So I was sent to Wellesley for my junior year. And while there, I was taking a French course and I was absolutely lost in the course because most of the women in that course had traveled to France. And so everybody was quite fluent and I didn't understand anything in the class. So I went to my professor and said, I'm very sorry, but I have to drop this class because I'm totally lost in it. He showed no sympathy for me, I thought, and said, well, no, I'm not going to sign your class card. Um, and I said, well, what should I do? I, I, I don't understand anything in the class. And he said, just work harder. 
If I'd had money for um, a flight home, I would have taken it. But I had no money, and so I had to stay. So I had no choice but to dig in and to try to do the work. So I went to the lab every day, and I studied. And then suddenly one day, I grasped the fact that I was understanding what was going on in the class. The fact that I could overcome (laughs) the feeling of ineptitude, the feeling of ignorance that I had by working hard transformed the world for me. And when I'm describing this to my students, when they come in and they say, I can't do something, I tell them the story and I say, look at what happened to me. I understand how you're feeling now, but look what I did. And guess what? I conquered French and I not only conquered it when I was a junior, but I got a PhD in it from Harvard. So just because you think at the time you can't do something doesn't mean you should give up. Keep at it and push yourself as hard as you can beyond the barriers that you see in front of you. Hmm. The the narrative you trace ends after you finish your academic studies. So you never delve into your tenure at Brown or at Smith. So why did you stop where you stopped in the memoir? I stopped in part because for my students, The most persistent question that I get is not what was your life like as a president or what did you do when you were Smith? That's not their question. Their question is, Hmm. why are you the person you are? Uh, Because Hmm. we don't understand when we think about your childhood and we think about what life was like in the country at the time, we don't understand how you go from that point to where you are today. So draw a picture for us. And so I found myself trying to explain that over and over again to my students at Brown, to students at Prairie View. I was once at Smith and I saw a girl walking along the path on crutches and I stopped my car and I said, get in, I'm going to take you where you need to go. And she said to my horror, oh no, President Simmons, if you could do what you've done, given where you started, I can certainly get up this hill on crutches. Well, I don't want to be mythologized. I want my students to understand these are simple things that we do in life to manage from one point to another and to build on what we have learned uh, before. And as we build a future, we're building in different stages. And it's possible, just possible, that anybody can do what I've done if they only open themselves up to learning and if they only open themselves up to the people who step onto their path. Oh, that's a great way to put it. Did that student end up taking the ride? No, she refused to get in the car. Wow. And that's that's really seared in my mind. I think about that. And I, yeah. I don't want to be that person for my yeah, students, yeah. right? What is the main thing you hope people take away from your book? Several things. First of all, many, many students today tend to be very formulaic in their thinking about how to be successful in life. I hope people take away the fact that life can deal us so many different variables. It is how we cope with those variables that shapes our story in the end. And so, number one, that's the message that I want my students to take away, is that there are all kinds of things you can do if you rely on the fundamental value of learning. That's number one. Number two, 
I want people to understand how important people can be in that journey. And they are not necessarily people who are famous. They're not people who are glamorous. We love to admire glamorous, famous people. But sometimes it's a very simple woman who has, you know, an eighth grade education who can shape your life in an amazing way. And that was my mother. Uh, Sometimes it's a teacher who has so much joy in her voice that she makes you want to join her in being excited about learning. Sometimes it's the janitor who is cleaning up your dorm who has something significant to say to you. All of that is about people who come into our lives who can influence us in very powerful ways. And finally, teachers, how important Mm -hmm. teachers and educators are. We have people meddling in education in outrageous ways today, disempowering the role of educators and especially teachers in the classroom. And I just want to say how important that teacher in the classroom is to those students who are in desperate conditions, especially, who need a way to understand a different future. And what are you talking about there with the people meddling with education? Is that the the effort to kind of um, decide on what curriculum is taught? What books are read, what teachers should be like, what they should say and what they should not say, right, right. how schools should be designed. Uh, we actually have here in Texas a superintendent who has eliminated libraries in certain schools and turn them into detention centers. Wow. We're at a point where we are much less interested in empowering educators. And to me, the way to make our schools perform at the highest level is really to empower educators. I also, while we have you, wanted to get your perspective on some current events in June the U.S. Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions, declaring race cannot be a factor and forcing institutions of higher education to look for new ways to achieve diverse student bodies. So what advice would you give to college presidents now who are looking for ways to make their campuses more diverse? What can they do? Well, I mean, I, I have a whole list of things I'm suggesting that college presidents do. First of all, universities have got to be better at not just writing down a mission statement or a policy, but actually following through on it. So if you believe that diversity is so important in your university, what measures are you taking to make sure that your students are informed by that diversity? Or are you simply creating a beautiful postcard that represents different people, and therefore you put that up on your website and say, we are Mm. very diverse. If your teaching, if your curriculum, if your practices do not find ways for students to benefit from that, then you're really not, you're not a diverse institution. What I'm saying is we have to find ways to be meaningfully diverse and meaningfully inclusive because you cannot... Uh, support policies of picking people out at a superficial level and saying that that's your solution for diversity. 
since that ruling, there's been a lot of scrutiny on legacy admissions. And, for, you know, for decades, some colleges, including Brown, have given students who are related to alumni preferential treatment and admissions. Should that continue? Here's the problem with higher education in this country. It's not so much a problem, but but it is a factor. And that is the government does not support all higher education institutions. If you want to have private institutions, then what you're saying is those private institutions have to be able to raise funds themselves. Well, how are they going to do that? Well, clearly, what has made private institutions, a many private institutions strong in this country, is the devotion of alumni to the institution and the fact that they give to the institution. So the question is, how much of a benefit has legacy admission been to the ability of institutions to support themselves? You know, most people would say, absolutely, it's been very important. It seems to me there are sensible ways of adjusting legacy admission. And that is, number one, legacy admission should comport with general admission. It should not provide an advantage to unqualified applicants. And so if you say that you must be able to demonstrate that when you admit um, a, a legacy student, they are consistent in their qualifications with your applicant pools. As with most things that are challenged, something has been awry in admissions in many universities, and that is the reason that people are focused on it. I also wanted to ask you, you know, you broke ground as the first black woman to lead an Ivy League institution. So what did you think about Dr. Melissa Gilliam becoming Boston University's next president. She's going to be the first woman and the first black leader there. You know, one of the things that I dreamed of when I was appointed first president of Smith and, and then president of Brown, when people were making so much of my race, I dreamed of a day when people would not do that anymore. The fact is, when you become a president, you're measured not by whether or not you did enough considering the fact that you were black. You're measured by whether or not you serve the university fully as a president. And so it's perhaps vaguely interesting, people's race. But what's more interesting is what their background is, what what qualified them to assume that position. What are they like personally? What can they bring to the role as an exemplar? in education. You want all of those things to count considerably more. And so I'm very happy for her. I'm very happy that the university will enjoy the benefit of her leadership, but no one should be fooled that people will give her a break because she happens to be black. They won't. Right, right. Finally, I wanted to ask what you would say to a young black girl, perhaps the youngest of 12, born in Grapeland today. What would you tell her about the racism and the discrimination she faces in the United States today and how she should respond to it. In a sense, if you experience that, you have the advantage of knowing how harmful such attitudes can be. And because you have firsthand knowledge of how harmful those attitudes and policies can be, you have the obligation to work to overturn that and to be a person yourself 
who never manifests any similar thoughts or actions. That's why I think it's so important to urge young people to, by their actions, by their personal beliefs and their personal approaches, to be the kind of people that the country needs. Because that's the most powerful antidote that I see to overturning the kind of hate that we see emerging in the country once again. In a way, I feel privileged to have had the benefit, if I can put it that way, of the difficulties I had as a child because it has helped me enormously in my life to understand what I must do as a consequence. Very good. President Simmons, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall with help from Carlos Munoz and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.